Welcome, listeners, to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Before we begin, some quick housekeeping. First, we are ACE approved. During the talk, you'll hear two keywords, jot those down, and then after the episode, click the link to our website in the show description to purchase your CEUs. Next, you can stay up to date with the pod by following us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. And now, on to the good stuff. In episode 19, we meet with Dr. Polly Gavoni to discuss how he applies behavior analytic principles in what may initially appear to be very different settings, the MMA and the classroom. For many educators, sometimes going into the school setting can feel like stepping into the ring or cage as they fight through various obstacles to help their students achieve. Polly describes how he incorporates the same behavioral strategies he uses to train and coach his fighters to train and coach educators. So grab your towel, adjust your stereo, and tune in to episode 19, Superhero Scientist, Getting in the Rings with Dr. Polly Gavoni. All right, listeners, welcome back to the Atypical Behavior Analyst. My name is Kelly Tate. I am your host, and I am here today with Dr. Paul Gavoni. Did I pronounce that right? Close enough. Gavoni. Gavoni. Bologna, macaroni. Yeah. Oh, I My friends call me Polly, though. Please call me Polly. Excellent. I am here with Polly, and I am very excited because I have seen your work when it comes to deliberate coaching and the work that you've done in organizational behavior management. Um, but I've also recently found out that you have worked as an MMA fighter and now trainer and um, enjoying fitness uh, myself and doing obstacle course races and just trying to find different ways to explore and get I don't know, we'll say agitation and things like that, just healthy ways uh, to work through and process life. Um, MMA's always looked really interesting, but I'm, I'm not one to actually enjoy getting hit. I'll go hit something. I enjoy hitting a bag all the day. But yeah, so I'm just, I'm really it's an excited. acquired taste. Yes. So I'm super excited um, to sit down and chat with you for a little bit. So if you could start by giving us a little bit of your history, um, kind of how you fell into behavior analysis, and then how you got to this point with incorporating it with what your, your MMA step is now. Yeah, it's funny. I think I get asked this stuff a lot, and then usually a different story comes out. It's all the same thing, but it's like, what bits of the story do you discriminate, you know? Um, and just when you ask me that, I'm like, all right. I, I, when I was, you know, when you're younger, your, your parents, people are always asking you, what do you do? What do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I was always a big superhero fan. And uh, I like, you know, like Spider-Man or, you know, the Incredible Hulk and all those guys. And so they were, they were both scientists. And so I thought, well, I really, I want to be a scientist. And I also said, like, I'm really interested in finding out and I want to be a superhero too, but that didn't work out. Um, I'm really interested in uh, figuring out why people do what they do. So I ended up going into social work early on. I I went to education because I didn't know what the hell I want to do. I was like, uh, you know, I didn't care for school. I did all right. You know, I got good grades. I did terrible on like my SAT and ACT. Um, and then I, I started to go into education and like, I don't know, this is for me. I took, uh, you know, like a year's worth of courses and I switched my major and went into social work. And so I kind of felt like, all right, I want to help people. That's what makes me feel good. That's a value of mine. And um, then um, I started working as a uh, clinical coordinator, and this is mental health, at an alternative school. And somebody said, hey, there's this certification you can get. This is in 2003. Um, and if you get it, you can make, you know, 50 bucks an hour or something like that. You know, you social workers, you don't go into social work because you want to make money. You know, I'm not making great money. So uh, I said, all right, I'll go check it out. And when I 
when I went to the classroom, um, and it was actually before behavior analysis, it's when behavior analysis could actually be uh, uh, taught at some place that wasn't a university. It was under Dr. Stephen Starin. He was former president of FABA, super cool guy. Um, I was like, wow, I kind of, Richard Fox calls it being a natural behavior analyst. I kind of always suspected this. I kind of behaved this way in my mental health practice. I really treated things behaviorally, but now there are words for this stuff and there's like concrete methodology and I'm seeing it work as I did my staff meds and recorded data. And, you know, of course, posting that I'm always competitive and I wanted to be number one on the wall with that stuff, you know? And um, so I ended up, uh, but I was surrounded by mental health folks and whether very well-meaning and I think they're heart heavy and heart, um, but light and science and some of the, the, the approaches, you know, and so I didn't also to have, you weren't required to have a mentor. So I um, ended up picking up a job as a behavior analyst, a district behavior analyst in the school board because I'd moved and um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> I'd be like, we'll go in there and do an FBA and a BIP. Uh, alrighty. So I picked up a book. I think it was in a Hawthorne book. It was with a green book. I don't know. It was my Bible. And I wrote, uh, conducted an FBA and did a BIP. And the BIP was like the size of a book, which nobody would follow. But I did it and I checked the task off the list. And, um, you know, pretty soon this is where I was going around doing this stuff. And like, this is not helping. You know, one, I'm probably not doing a great job of writing this. And two, the teacher's not going to follow this behavior intervention plan when they're also don't have basic classroom management in place. In fact, it's not just this teacher, it's a whole bunch of teachers. And so I was like, well, how is this happening? So they, they actually had, I started teaching crisis management um, and they asked me to go support a school uh, and a classroom, not a school, a classroom. And I went into the classroom, like I'm walking through the school. I'm like, this place is an effing mess. Kids running around all the place. I wrote it. We actually I wrote a, but the whole stories and the, the uh, actually divide the story up in a couple of my books, the latest one, quick responses. I give the very specific story. It's a true story, man. It's like the kids had taken over the school. And, um, but the one class that I was sent to, the kids were pretty good. And I was like, what is going on here? Why? And it was a special needs class. And it was good because they were actually teaching using direct instruction to teach, which was, which was amazing. You know, for anybody that's not familiar with direct instruction, there's a, if they go ahead and just Google project follow through and click the images button and you will see like a graph that pulls up that just shows you it's a, the, the largest scale study that's ever been done in education. It's a 10 year study that the outcomes for direct instruction uh, were just amazing, un, uncomparable to other instructional practices because they compared them to like 20 other instructional practices uh, in you know math and reading. And also uh, I think they measured like a self-esteem or something like that. So just incredible. It, it was actually supposed to be an extension of Head Start um, which, by the way, I went to when I was younger. Yeah. So it was amazing. So um, they uh, uh, so um, they said to me at the end of the school year, like, listen, we need help turning around this school. Can you help us? And I'm like, I don't think so, <laughs> you know, in my head. But I'm like, I'm a behavior analyst and this is like the greatest science in the world. So, you know, I'm not I don't not being mentored and I don't go to conferences and I'm not reading research. But I do have the science, so I should be able, I'm supposed to be able to do this because I'm sure everybody else is doing this. I'm just a slacker. So um, the school had, you ever hear of school-wide positive behavior support? Um, it's just, yeah, I, I look at it as like, yeah. So 
So the school was trained in it, but people weren't doing it. Right. And I, I went to somebody, another behavior analyst. I said, I kind of like think that they need like school-wide positive behavior support for the teachers, because if we're going to help the students, we got to get the teachers to engage in certain behaviors. Doesn't that make sense? Like, well, there is something like that. It's called organizational behavior management. And they handed me a book by Dr. Aubrey Daniels called bring out the best in people, which I actually have on the table right next to me right now. Um, and I read the book and I'm like, all right, this seems like everything I learned in my coursework. Let me just go start doing some stuff. And I started doing some stuff, but I did it selfishly. I don't want to act like I was all altruistic about this stuff. I'm like, how the hell the next year, how am I going to turn this whole school around? I don't know what to do about this, but you know what? Maybe I can tackle this morning arrival because the kids are getting off the bus and it's dangerous and they're running up and down. They're running the cafeteria. And I got to think that's not, can't be good for the teachers because they're coming in the classroom overly aroused. So I did, I shaped up the arrival time. It was very simple, low response effort. I got the teachers to stand where they're supposed to stand. I got them to greet the kids, uh, you know, you know, reinforce them because elementary for walking on the straight line. If they ran instead of just saying walk, no, stop them and have them walk back. Right. So that was a punishment, you know, because it delayed them getting to where they wanted to go. And that was aversive. And the other kids saw it. And like within a week, like the whole arrival time shaped up. And people are like, well, this guy knows what he's doing. I'm like, man, I, I do. <laughs> like there's change happening. So then I did the same thing for dismissal. Then I did the same thing for the cafeteria, which was a little bit of a larger chore. And I would take the data at the end of the day. I'm like, hey, guys, because you were engaging in ABC behavior, look at these outcomes. You are getting a huge reduction in calls for assistance because they had office dis discipline referrals, which was the metric that PBIS schools use for uh, uh behavior problems right if a kid gets called out they write it but the problem with that is in large schools with like lots of behavior problems is you're measuring the behavior of people writing the referrals and that's a high response effort but when they call for assistance which they were doing there's only one person i need to collect that data from and that was what i would call the dispatcher the front desk person i'm like can you please log this data in so then i got real-time data to figure out really where are the problem behaviors occurring because it was a classroom teacher the student that was being called you know time of day all that stuff and i could measure it and i actually did my dissertation on that i, I was getting over 40 calls a day right codes a day for people to come out to the classroom to remove kids over 40 this is in, in, in a school of uh, less than 600 students and um so i'm like man so i had a team two rbts and we go out remove them and I would use the data and I would, I would share it with the teachers say, because you were doing A, B, and C, look at the reduction in codes that we have. This is great job, you know, this stuff's starting to work. And then I would take the code data and look at the teachers that had the biggest needs, right? Because I could see that. And uh, we'd go in there and be like, all right, hey, if you call for assistance X amount of time, we're going to come in, we're going to take a look at your classroom management and try to help you with those things. And that's what we started doing. And then I'd use that data the same way that school-wide PBS would want you to do is like to reinforce like grade groups for having reductions, you know, to show the, the principals that I would craft an email for the principal like, hey, send this out to staff because I wanted them to have the instructional control. I want them to learn how to use the metrics so I could fade out. I also had to create a room that was, uh, you know, it, when you have that many suspensions, the, the year before they had like 795 suspensions. And, uh, you know, I'm like, the kids are still misbehaving. It's not like these antecedent strategies are just going to kick in automatically. So I had to go, uh, I had to create a place for the kids to go. I, uh, I called this, I called the ditch to Disney syndrome before they were being sent to somewhere they didn't want to be to somewhere that they, they wanted to be, which is home. I would say, they would say, how do you know what they want to go home? Hold on, Jamil. Right now, what do you want? I want to go home. 
there you go. He's telling you he wants to go home. Sending him home is a bad idea. So I created this room. We ended up calling it the, the, the quick room over time. And it was a procedure that had timers and a computer signaling program that went off with point sheets. And, the, and it had to be a place the kids didn't want to go. It had to be the desert. I really removed as much reinforcement as I can. It worked for a lot of the kids because they had to earn their way out of there. And if they did the right thing, they would get time off. Um, so anyways, we sent them back. This worked. We went from the year before 795 suspensions to 67 that year. And it wasn't easy. And I, don't, I can't say it was all because of that stuff. But it was a bit, certainly a big portion of it. We actually made the whole coding system and in the suspension, the alternative suspension program, we, we, we bought it district wide and it worked across different uh, areas. So this is my first real, you know, project where I use organizational behavior management to make a large scale change uh, in, in a school with their business results, student achievement, student achievement moved up as well, you know, so all these things that happen. And so uh, they, they, uh, another principal asked me, can you come do it with me? Cause they were struggling. Great principal. We turned his school around behavior. They were brought it from a C to an A. Then they asked him to go do another school. And he brought me in there with them. We brought that school from a C to A. And then we started a school improvement school turnaround process. And so all this while I'm getting very reinforced for using OBM. And I actually wrote a book with it on it. What I had done called quick wins, accelerating school transformation through science, engagement, leadership, it was just about doing easy stuff that had big outcomes, you know? Um, and so that's where I went to the schools and I was a school improvement manager. That's where I started to focus on coaching more. Right. And this is more about performance management, looking at like uh, behavior systems. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, these guys are all going to training and, and this will all generalize into MMA, by the way, but they're, they're, uh, they're walking back in the classrooms and I've, most of the trainings were not good. But some of the trainings were real good. I watched them bring in a company who did really good training on cooperative learning. It's called Kagan Strategies. And cooperative learning is a great way to engage students. And I loved it so much. And they did such an amazing job in training. They did behavior skills training. You know, They used cooperative learning strategies to engage the teachers. But then if you went out into the classroom the next week, you would only see them using like one strategy, maybe two strategies. You're like, well, how can that be? It was great. Well, it's because we know that training is an antecedent strategy. And in order to transfer those skills into the natural environment, you need post-training uh, process, right? You need to get them in touch with consequences that are going to help to maintain the behavior. And they need to do it right enough and long enough to create a habit, which means then if the habit's going to maintain, it's got to produce naturally occurring consequences, right? Reinforcement that's naturally occurring. So um, that's where I... That's where I'm like, you know what? There's a difference between training and coaching. And training is about skill acquisition. Coaching is about transferring skills into natural environment. That's where Dr. Nick Weldon and I wrote the book, Deliver Coaching, about that. And so then I started to think about like, well, you know, I'm doing this all the time. And I've my laboratory is the gym. I've engaged in thousands and thousands of hours of behavior skills training. I've had to birth that skill have it grow up to be a, an adolescent, right? And then go off into the real world to produce valued outcomes, which is the fight. So how do you get it from birthing it to actually being successful in the real world, the fight? And that is, you know, you training a skill acquisition. Now I have to get that person to perform that skill under what's as close as possible to the natural environment, which would, we would might call a simulation, right? And a simulation in mixed martial arts or combat sports is sparring but you can't just teach somebody a skill and say now go spar 
because they have to, even if they know what to do, they have to discriminate when to do it. So they need lots of repetition and knowing when to slip a punch, when to roll under, when to throw the jab, the right hand. So in order to give them that kind of repetition, uh, the, the environment has to be relatively safe. So I can't have the fighters throwing a hundred different strikes, right? They can, they're going to throw these two strikes. If, for example, if you're working on defense, a defensive move. And now this gives my fighter and they're throwing at 50%. So they have an opportunity to see it coming. And so it gives my fighter the opportunity to get high repetition in the skill that they've previously learned under conditions that are closer to the naturally occurring conditions. Does that make sense so far? And then I end up upping, right? The uh, And if I say throw 50%, I can't say it's technically 50%. You know what I mean? Hey, throw half. Um, but now we up, right, how the intensity, which were the throwing their punches, and then we start to add in other strikes, right? So until it gets to, you know what, this is now generalized into this simulation. They're getting high repetitions of doing it, and they're doing it successfully, which means that's going to develop a habit for them, as opposed to teaching the skill. They try it. It's a new skill. They take a beating in there, and then that punishes the skill, and they no longer want to do it because we're in the business of habit development, and you have to create this process. And that's the same process that is typically missing from training in any organizations because you get a sit and get. It's an antecedent strategy. It only results in about 10% generalization of skills into the natural environment. And it's not just happening in education or in sports. It's happening in every organization across the world because they don't have this process for connecting the skills to simulation, but also the post-training process of coaching. I'm just going to call coaching. Coaching is a verb. Anybody can engage in coaching behavior, right? Supporting the transference of learned skills into the natural environment. And this can happen in vivo. I can teach people a skill in the environment, right? But once I, once the function goes from them learning the skill to transferring them, applying it naturally in, in the environment and trying to get them in touch with those naturally occurring reinforcers, this is where you're now engaging coaching. So, you know, whatever hat you have, supervisor, manager, assistant, principal, principal, coach, trainer, whatever, training, skill acquisition, coaching transfers to the skills. Does that make sense? So it's so beautiful. Like my brain just kind of exploded where I'm like, I had never, like I, I've seen both of those things separately, but to now see the comparison and the beautiful overlay. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Okay. Continue. So, uh, all right. So, uh, I wanted to give you the history of how I got into coaching and, uh, you know, I was already doing MMA. So I'm going to come back. Do you have any questions about what I said? Because I, I know just for the listeners, Kelly's great. She's got her microphone on mute. So to me, that means keep talking, you know, I don't want people to think I'm like, I'm like just puking on the mic here. Do you have any questions about what I've said so far? So, um, okay. I'm glad that you stopped yourself because part of me was like, I don't want to interrupt flows. Um, I I said, I love this beautiful analogy between, um, what it looks like going into and preparing to get into the ring and what it looks like and preparing to go into the ring, also known as school classrooms. Um, cause I feel right. a lot of teachers feel it. And especially yeah, in the, this day and age, as we will forever say, um, until probably the 1930s or 2030s, there we go. Um, it's, it's tough. And I, and like you've mentioned, there's not a lot of support for the teachers. I've, and I, I have several teacher friends and I have several BCBAs who were teachers that are now BCBAs. And, I never worked in the classroom and had no idea the difficulty and the barriers that went with it until I had my supervisee and it was such a learning experience for both of us. Um, And that was one of the things that she still touts is this classroom management is so important. And I think 
really emphasizing, yeah, that post-training, because how often do we go to a conference or do we go to a workshop? And it's like, oh, yeah, you get all jazzed up and everything. And then you get back to your clinic or you get back to the home or whatever. And it doesn't work the first time you try it, or it kind of works, but then you start questioning like, oh, did I really do it right? You know, I don't think so. And, and yeah, that's really tough. So, you know, that kind of leads to the question of, you know, what are some things that we can do um, as behavior analysts when we were presenting these workshops and everything to continue to support those things? So, well, well, I'll tell you. So in terms of schools now, listen, I want, I want to say this ahead of time. If you, anybody plans to write a book, don't do it because you think you're going to make money. Like literally some of these books I make 10 cents a copy off of. You don't do it for that reason. You know, I love helping people. It's really my value. I like writing. I like developing content. I like sharing the science in a way that is palatable to people. And one of the, probably the beautiful things is that because I didn't come through it from a formal behavior analytic background, probably because I didn't have mentorship, I just figure shit out on my own, you know? And so I wasn't conditioned to think about the science of only working with people with disabilities. I'm like, the science can and should be used everywhere. So I started just using it everywhere and thinking about that way. Uh, you know, there was no conditioning. So I'm, I'm going to share something with you. I have it here just because I was working on it, but I just came out with a new book, Quick Responses uh, for Reducing Misbehavior and Suspensions, a toolbox for uh, uh, classroom and school leaders. And the reason I bring that up is because teachers need to have one for, first of all, uh, they need to have systems. I'm going to come back to that in one second. Higher education is doing a piss poor job of training our educators for the demands of the classroom. And the analogy that you made Kelly is an analogy I've made many times. It's like dropping my fighters into the ringer cage, expecting them to perform. And when they're not um, evaluating them, telling them they need, need to do a, B and C, but just like my fighters, they're taking a beating. They're going to do what they need to do to feel safe right? To feel safe. And then after a while, if they're not producing valued outcomes, positive reinforcement, they're going to leave. They're going to be like, this isn't for me. But because teaching is complex. And in my eyes, educators are the backbone of our country. And we have a ton leaving the field, especially in schools that are Title I, which those kids need it more than anybody. They need good education. And our classrooms with students with disabilities, you know, in schools, they're not getting what they need. And they're being dropped in there and they're expected to do what, you know, the, do the work. It's your job. And then somebody shows up in their classroom and tells them the things that they need to do. And they come back a week later and they're like, why aren't you doing your job? Well, to your point, you try it. Teaching in these classrooms is extremely complex and you're not given the tools, the resources to do this stuff. So it becomes very challenging. But one of the things that we need to think about with all teachers, behavior analysts, do yourself a favor and do this. All of your teachers, and we have this in the book, need a classroom management plan. Think about it. Just like your, your learner that you're working with, your client, there's a plan. And the plan tells people what to do in order to produce this outcome. And these plans have, and, and Kelly, I have, if people don't want to buy the book, uh, Anika Costa and I actually created, I'll send you the link to it. We created a 15 minute video on developing a classroom management plan that, you know, walks people through the, uh, you know, what are the critical behaviors of it, but it, a, a plan is your system and the teachers need to know what they expect first. Right. And for all, not, not just a rule says come to class on time, you know, be prepared, uh, have a pen, you know, pen and pay, pencil, keep your hands to yourself. That's great. And that's a rule that keeps you governs your behavior throughout the day. But every activity and transition you have, there's a very set of pinpointed behaviors that are expected of students. For example, if you're doing a whole class activity, 
the expectations for talking are different than if you're doing a small group with somebody else, right? You can't just say, don't talk. No, you can talk, but talking, conversing is complex. Who can you converse with? What can you converse about? How loud can you converse with? How can you get help at certain times of the day? Because like a whole group, great, or classroom, I just raised my hand. But if the teacher's broken up in small groups and other people are, and they need help, you ever put your hand up for like 10 seconds? You know, it gets tiring and the teacher's not responding and that doesn't work. You know, can you go to get a drink of water? Can you go to the bathroom? You know, maybe sometimes yes, maybe sometimes no. It's going to be based on what the teacher wants and expects, what they want the culture of their classroom. But then once you've figured those things out, now you have to teach it. Teaching isn't telling, right? We got to go through the behavior skills process to give the students the information. And then you have to go through the coaching process to make sure you're developing the habits of it, which means you need to know how to reinforce and punish. Yes, I said the word punish, punish behavior. The problem with punishment in school is that people overuse it. They use it incorrectly, right? They only have, they let behavior go because they don't have tools like small behavior and that mounts, you know, like really, unless it's like rolling your eyes, like junk behavior like that, you shouldn't let most behavior go in the classroom uh, with the exception of teacher attention. And if it's, if it's functioning for teacher attention, then you might use pivot praise or some other strategy to do that. But you, but by not correcting misbehavior, you make it seem like it's okay. You're giving students permission to engage in that behavior. And that's where the, you know, the, the four to one, six to one, eight to one, whatever, making sure that you're recognizing and shaping appropriate behavior a lot more than you're correcting it. So you build a positive culture. Does that make sense? And so having a system in place like that, it's like the way I'll describe systems is if imagine learning to drive, but there's no roads. There's no lines in them. There's no stop signs. There's nothing that governs your behavior, right? You need rules to govern your behavior. And all those things end up having getting stimulus control over your behavior. If you don't have that, the teacher's constantly having to redirect and do all the stuff. You wouldn't, if people were getting into accents, the millions and tens of millions of people that drive, you wouldn't go reteach all those guys how to drive. No, you need to put a system in place where most people follow that system. And then you have penalties for not following. And the reinforcement for following is that you get from point A to point B safely. So there's, you know, there's reinforcement that's part of the whole process. So behavior analysts, do yourself a favor. When you go in the classrooms, see if there's classroom management and focus on that because that won't just help that one learner. And it's the easiest thing for the teacher to do, but it's going to help multiple learners over multiple years when teachers understand this. But don't blame them. It's not their fault. They're not being trained to this. And in Florida, in particular, a lot of a lot of areas, many of the teachers are coming into the field not out of teacher preparation programs. All they have to do is pass the certification test. That's like dropping my fighter into the cage after passing a test. That's not the way shit works. <laughs> it's stupid. It's stupid. They need really good teacher preparation programs. And then we won't have up to 60% of the teachers leaving the field inside of five years, you know, and th that 60% is a high end, but it's in those schools that are high poverty where they need it the most. The, any, before I go back to my MMA uh, stuff, does that make sense, Kelly? And do you have any questions about anything I just said? No. Then did I answer your question? Pardon the interruption, listeners, but if you are listening for CEUs, here's the first of your two keywords. When. W-H-E-N. It is important to teach when the behavior should occur. When. Yes. Um, and I think 
it, it, it can be expanded on even more because it's not just looking at what happens in the classrooms, but these same pain points and issues arise um, in group home situations, in day habs. Um, in Texas, we still have state-supported living centers. So we have these big residential um, locations. So when I've been contracted and consulted with those locations, a lot of times I go in and I look at the behavior and, and you know, the individual's behavior they're a product of their environment and the person taking care of them is a product of their environment. Yes. They go through these trainings that says, give them attention when they do good things. Um, Don't Mm -hmm. give them attention when they don't do. And the problem is we're missing the point of that. This is a a human. I mean, oftentimes it's an adult human who has a long learning history. Um, Mm -hmm. And oftentimes there's other variables like trauma and, and things in there too, but there's not a lot of support for, the, the caregiver or the staff member, the direct care staff. And so they do the bare minimum to keep everybody alive. Um, and it doesn't lead to a lot of growth or training in these cases. So the people become very stagnant. And I, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating that if we can find some ways um, to build in that, like you said, that post, that post training support side of it and really work on, tackling smaller issues. Okay. Let's, let's get this situation figured out. Like let's set the environment up. So it's going to be successful and also less response cost on you as the caregiver or teacher. So that way you can actually utilize your time on teaching. That's, and, and that's a key, that last piece that you said there, and that was very well said. I mean, if you're going to bring out the best in student, you got to bring out the best in teacher. You're going to bring out the best in teacher. You got to bring out the best in leader and so on. And this is why it's so important that we disseminate the science of human behavior so people understand and want it. And they want to adopt the principles because to your point, like with a group, uh, you know, with a group home owner, they need to see what's in it for them. Right? What are the reinforcers are? Well, income is a big one, right? Okay. So if you want to make more income, the staff turnover hurt your income, your bottom line. Well, yes, it does. You know, also does it cost you time and energy? Well, yes, it does. Okay. Well, what if we could, you know, engage in training these guys and teaching them the principles of behavior. So they're able to assess, problem solve, make decision and take action in the context of the situation, right? Based on functions of behavior and not just doing the same thing to all kids. You know, that's going to reduce behavior instances. If it reduces behavior instances, you think your staff will stick around more, you know, how will that help you? And by the way, I'm going through like, this is like motivational interviewing, spin selling uh, by Neil Rackham, you know, asking people questions, figuring out what their goals are, the reinforcers are, seeing what's blocking access to those and saying, hey, as a behavior analyst, if I could remove these obstacles, would you be willing to engage in these behaviors to produce that outcome? Like, oh yeah, you know, by, and when you do motivational interviewing correctly, they're going to be more likely wanting to engage you with stuff. So um, yes, a hundred percent. We need to know people's reinforcers up the line, and then we need to engage them in the process, not do things to them, do things with them. But this is the four-term contingency, not the three-term contingency. The four-term requires we create a want, right? It's some establishing operations, you know, there's got to be something that drives them to want to engage in the behaviors because it means they're going to have to do something more or lesser differently. And we need them to start those behaviors in order to produce those reinforcers. It's up to us to look for things that are quick wins or require low responses that, you know, produce a valuable and visible outcome for them. So they're going to keep engaging those behaviors, but we got to connect that you know, to the ultimate naturally occurring reinforcer by coaching. This is where we use data and feedback and all these things to keep them moving long enough and well enough to produce those outcomes so we can fade out, right? So the, it's the environment that maintains the behavior. We're only temporarily a part of the environment. Does that, that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So I think to transition, let me see if I can transition this one. Um, huh. So with like teachers, 
you would want to be faded out to the point that, yeah, really, I put myself out of a job when it comes to managing the classroom. They should have the tools. They should be able to build it themselves after I leave as well, not always relying on me. But now in the area of fitness and coaching, um, I... I don't just walk away from my trainers. Um, I may, I stay in contact with them. You know, once my race ends, like, cool, I got my medal and everything. I'm still talking to them. Okay, what do we need to do for the next time? So I think that's interesting that in some cases, while yes, we, we fade ourselves out in regards to I'm not in the ring with you or I'm not on the course with you, but they, they do usually come back. So I like that kind of analogy too there. So let, let's, let's dive into that one. So what does it look like in this ring? Sure. Uh, so, um, let me see. Uh, well, I, I, one of, I'll, I'll get into just very quick how I started fighting and how I evolved, evolved in the coaching part of it. Um, my first girlfriend had dumped me uh, back in like the early nineties and uh, I didn't take it very well. I didn't have coping skills. I wish I had the act matrix back then. Uh, and uh, my, a friend of mine went and fought at this tough man fight at the corner. I grew up in a pretty you know rough neighborhood. I've been, you know, it came from a wonderful, loving family, but, you know, I was in a pretty rough environment. And, uh, you know, he, he fought, he actually six foot seven, 265 pounds, and he took a beating. Um, but I was like, well, you know, they said, well, why don't you get up and fight? I was, you know, lifted weights. And uh, there was a guy who lived across the street, Tyrone. They said, well, you know, he's a fighter. Why don't you go fight him? I'm like, all right, F it. You know, I just didn't care. And uh, a boxer had shown me how to throw a jab. And I, I beat him with a jab, not because I was better than him, but because, you know, just basic physics, I guess he was throwing or geometry. I don't know, but he was throwing hooks and hooks are shorter punches and they were just missing me. I was throwing a long straight jab and was beating him. And I just happened to have a little bit more gas than he did. So I won the fight, but for a guy that I understand behaviorally, why I kept with it for a guy who I was bullied when I was younger, uh, I had very low self-esteem from being dumped by my, my girl, like all of a sudden, like didn't matter if you're a kind person, compassionate person. It seems like people in our society value the lover and the fighter, you know, like whether it's the peasant or the king, you know, they did that. And so the crowd was coming out just like loving me to death. So it's easy to see why that big reinforcer when I was in a extreme state of deprivation and this good course, this meant women as well, they were coming. So that's a powerful reinforcer. So I started fighting. I started training at the boxing gym and there had to have been a powerful reinforcer because one of my keynotes to talk about is that my first day in the gym, I took a beating, got my nose broken from a professional boxer. He threw me in there. I'm like, this is, I make that analogy that you made earlier. Like, it's like what we're doing to our teachers. And I always wonder how many potential world champions walk through the door to take a beating like I did. And they never came back thinking that they ain't got what it takes, you know? And it wasn't that I was any more special. It's just, I was in such a state of deprivation and that reinforcement was so much that I kept coming back every day, taking beating. And this is pretty gross, but I'd have to be picking blood boogers out of my nose, like horrible stuff, man. I just got my nose fixed a year and a half ago. I couldn't even say some syllables because the side of my nose was so closed off, like 90% blocked. And they found like nine breaks in there. It was, it was bad, but Hey, the power of, you know, positive reinforcement, right? I kept coming, taking my beating. Well, you know, eventually I injuries and, you know, fighting and everything. I was like, you know, I, I got to tr transition from boxing to mixed martial arts. And I, I, there's a natural progression from going from fighting to coaching, you know. And so I started uh, coaching. And I, again, I don't want to say that I started reading research and doing it. That's not, not the way I did business. I went back and looked at what I was doing through a behavioral lens once I realized, like, wait a second. 
this is working because of this. And then I started making those connections. And then once I started looking at through the behavioral lens, uh, which by the way, I tell this is part of one of my talks is that I say people get behavioral myopia all the time in our field. And they forget that the science should and can be used everywhere. And they especially get it when they work with other adults, right? They start blaming and doing this stuff. Like, no, you have to look at the environment. You have to look at what, you know, why they're not performing. Is it a can't do or it's a won't do, you know, and you have to intervene appropriately based on those simple functions there. So um, I, uh, I started looking at it through that lens and that allowed me to start shaping things up more right uh, you know before i might use just like listen contrast is a metric if they can see a difference if a fighter can see that they're performing better as a result of this behavior it becomes like that metric becomes feedback and that that contracts becomes feedback and that feedback can be have a reinforcing effect on them right uh, but when you start deliberately finding easy ways to look at data uh, and show it to the fighter like punching power if you know if you pivot the back foot because it gives you more punching power and it you know, makes your punch a little bit longer and you can see that metric as feedback. That's a very powerful reinforcer for you. So I'm not going to have to stay over you and tell you that I might tell you the why to begin with. It's going to make you hit harder. But when you see that you're hit harder, hitting harder as a result of that pivot, that's a very powerful reinforcer. It's a quick way to develop habits. And so um, I would start wherever I can putting in some sort of metric. There's things that like count punches. There's like rounds. There's the number of times you've been hit. You know, I would use, uh, we, we I'd take a lot of video. We'd look at the video together and I'd ha ask them to discriminate certain behaviors. What are they seeing? And so we'd look for inner observer agreement. We would collect data on like my last fighter who's a very high level fighter. He's fighting in professional fight, fight fighter league. Um, I thought his, uh, his output was low, um, his striking output was low. And so I went and researched and found what the average output was for his weight class. And I said, like, here's your output. Here's the average for the weight class. Let's put a, let's try to increase this by 20%. And uh, I need you so to video real it. Real quick. So output, are you talking any one of those measurements you previously gave, mm -hmm. like the number of strikes or? Yeah, it was so the, okay. with this, we were counting strikes and actually, and then I broke it down to, it was output in a hole and I, but I picked just a couple of strikes. It was like the jab I wanted to increase. It was like a leg kick. And it was also the feints because feinting is a good way to uh, freeze your opponent. It makes you unpredictable, right? You don't want to be predictable in, in the fight game. And so uh, then I broke it down the intervals and I'm like, you know what? We really need to get off like two strikes every 10 seconds, you know? So I gave him like a, a goal, like a short-term goal to do this. And uh, I would collect data during those intervals and I'd watch like the first time I would show him data immediately when he saw his baseline and then like gave him, this is what we're going to work on 10 immediately, like double what I had set for a uh, percentage. Yeah. Because, you know, the whole thing is, is feedback loops with people, you know, when those feedback loops are delayed, it has a huge impact on behavior, but when, when they can have a metric and that, that metric is provided to them as feedback and the outcome is important to them, it's valuable, it's going to change their behavior. And I get immediate change in that behavior. And then, of course, now you need to then do it long enough and well enough. So that punch output is producing positive reinforcement for them or negative reinforcement, just reinforcing in general, getting hit less, I'm hitting the person more, I'm, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm winning the fight, you know, I'm winning each round, I'm winning 10 second intervals or whatever it might be because you need it to sustain. You know, we're not going to, I'm not going to, you know, collect that on this forever. We 
we pinpoint a couple of behaviors that we're going to work on, right? And uh, we work on those and we get that as part of the repertoire. And then we, uh, you know, pinpoint a couple more. And of course, the, you know, they're involved in choosing those behaviors and setting the goals because you don't want to do things to them. You need to do them with them, but they understand the outcome. You know, they see the why of it, right? That EO, like, you know what? This is important to me. And here's why it's important. Like, hey, getting hit less is important. Putting myself in a position to hit more is important for a fighter. And uh, yeah, so then it becomes sustainable. Does all that make sense? And do you have any questions for that? Oh, I love it. I also like, and thank you for clarifying what you meant by the output, because I think it's good to remember too, it's not just the overall, like you actually made it much smaller measurements to look at. So it's not as overwhelming for the fighter to be like, okay, I have to count all of these things. Instead, it's like, oh, we're just looking at X, Y, and Z. Big mistake coaches make is they tell them too much all the time. If you, one of the things that has happened uh, when I'm in the gym with another coach is that I will only work on you with one or two things. So my very presence, because when I go by you and I'll say that, I'm not going to work on you with anything else until you get this. And I pick pivotal skills, right? Because I know that's going to get them in touch with more learning in the future. They don't know I'm picking those things, but I know. So my very presence, when I walk by them, they start doing it more, right? So it serves as a simple prompt. My presence prompt for them to do the right thing. If they're doing it right, they get in touch with reinforcement and then that skill starts to stick. And then we focus on something else. A lot of coaches and they're well-meaning coaches. They see a fighter come out and they're telling them everything that they're doing wrong. And then you do this, that, and the other. And then the fighter doesn't know what to work for. And they, so they end up learning through trial and error, not necessarily the coaching, you know? Yeah. I, um, at one of the gyms that I worked at recently, the trainer there was like, you know, have a phrase, you know, have your phrase that means, you know, chest up, shoulders back. Um, mm -hmm. I do a lot of yoga with Adrian is one of my favorite yogis to follow. And I love her phrasing because it's tucking your tailbone and just having those little small comments, I can tell when it shifts the rest of my body as well. So it, like you said, it doesn't need to be this, 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 and this that you need to focus on. Let's find one that's going to actually make the biggest impact focus mm -hmm. there. And once we get yeah. that to start responding in, in accurate ways, ah, the rest of it starts to flow together too. And now it becomes more refining as opposed to having to teach the skill step-by-step step or more directly. That's it. And whenever you see that, that trainer there, you probably suck it in and pull your tailbone or whatever it is that she told you it's good for that she pinpointed a couple little behaviors for you to engage in that's fantastic that's a great example cool so i know um with time and everything i want to give us enough to let you kind of you know give a summary but one of the questions that i had um that i think a lot of people because we're dealing with so much in life right now and mental health has become a prominent focus and it's something that is pervasive across humans. Um, we all battle it in some way, shape or form. I know that when I go into a game or I go into a race and my head's not right, everything is affected by that. And it does take, I mean, it's, it's willpower and it's energy to get myself out of that headspace and get focused. So when you're working with fighters and even with teachers as well, um, what are some of the strategies or, or encouragements that you give them to help them work through that kind of negative energy? Yeah. So uh, that, that's a great question. Actually, uh, I wrote a book called uh, MMA Science Training, uh, Training, Coaching, and Belt Ranking Guide. And then I talk about some of Albert Bandera's work. Now, uh, Bandera's work uh, has been talked about in behavior analysis, but you won't find any of his work in any you know uh, behavior analytic journals, um, although it's in a bunch of other journals. So he has this thing, and it can be explained very behaviorally. He has this uh, thing, concept called self-efficacy, and that is your belief in your ability to accomplish something increases the likelihood that you will. 
But we know as behavioral analysts that your belief isn't developed magically or by telling somebody like, you know, like you can do it, you know, like that might be an antecedent strategy, but the goal is for them to actually engage in the behavior in the end uh, and what he calls master experience, engage in it long enough and well enough that, you know, hey, I start to believe that I'm going to produce this outcome. But you can also do it from like, uh, he calls it vicarious learning, you know, where you see other people doing it. You're like, all right, there's a model for you. And if they can do it, I can do it in verbal persuasion. You know what I mean? This is where people are, you know, giving you feedback and reinforcing behavior. So it can all be explained uh, behaviorally. But the whole thing is that we need to get people to engage in behavior and fear and anxiety and all those thoughts and feelings that show up can be very debilitating, very debilitating. Um, there's, there's, Two, there's there's a process called behavioral activation, and that's very behavior analytic. And there's uh, acceptance commitment therapy that comes out of the contextual behavior sciences. And I love ACT, and I'm not I am no expert in this, but one of the things I love is the ACT matrix. I love I got to write an article with Dr. Kevin Polk, which is a very nice guy, um, and we wrote it on fear and anxiety and MMA and how to get over it and using the matrix. So I believe it's a simple tool. It's scalable. In fact, I believe it like is what all schools needed for kids and for teachers, because we have to teach people to cope and why not use a behavior approach to do it. And so I do it with my fighters. I actually have them read the article that I wrote. I do it with my fighters. And uh, because in the end, um, in the end, it doesn't matter what you're thinking or feeling, you need to engage in the behavior that's going to produce that valued outcome. Now, the difference between like cognitive behavioral therapy act and behavioral activation is this. Cognitive behavioral therapy tries to get you to change your thoughts and feelings in order to change your behavior. Act says, you know, it doesn't matter what you think or feel. In the end, you got to engage in that behavior to, to produce that outcome. Now, they do focus on the acceptance piece. And I would, in my mind, I'm like, all right, this is how we desensitize people to this. So it doesn't produce this behavior because those thoughts and feelings are like precursors to unproductive behaviors or behaviors that move you further away from your reinforcers, you know? So you need to commit to these behaviors, which are right, what behaviors are those? Well, that's what research is for. Research tells you how to move towards these valued outcomes. And some of it, you don't have to be research, but if it's a teacher and they value learning in the classroom and a productive, happy environment, all right, use four to ones, you know, uh, do lesson plans, um, you know, ask a lot of questions, opportunities to respond, you know, these are the things that you need to engage in as opposed to when you feel angry, yelling at the kids, you know, that might give you temporary relief from the behavior might make you feel better, but it's moving you further away from your values. So it's the same thing with my fighters. Um, there's nothing that produces more fear and anxiety than fighting. I've been through it. I had to get through it. And you can get stuck in your own myriad of things, you know, and the best fighters use that to fuel their training. Like they're so afraid that they don't want to get hurt. They don't want to lose. They don't want to be, you know, embarrassed in front of people or knocked out or whatever that they're like, I need to train harder. And that is actually what's going to produce that outcome. Other fighters avoid, they get stuck on it. They're not thinking about what they need to do, like the goals and the plan, the very pinpointed behaviors they need to engage in uh, for to, to be successful in the fight. They're thinking about getting rid of this anxiety. They're taking medication. They're self-medicating, you know. They might be avoiding the gym or avoiding sparring with one guy who they're afraid of. And, you know, that moves you away from your values. Now, the coach also needs to use that matrix. I value my fighter being successful. What shows up? Oh, he's lazy. You know, when he's lazy, I do... I don't give him attention. Well, what can I do to increase the likelihood that 
he'll do this well i'm gonna i'm gonna use behavioral momentum i'm going to uh i'm not gonna put him in there with that killer fighter i'm gonna put him in with this fighter who's maybe has a little bit less skills than him because i'm gonna build up his own self-efficacy or her own self-efficacy and build it from there and so uh you know uh, the whole thing is still arranging the environment that's going to allow people get to get in touch with positive reinforcement in and getting them in touch with long enough that's going to create a habit so getting them to activate that behavior but also just the acceptance part of the acceptance commitment there because behavior activation doesn't you know they're just like okay that's fine doesn't matter what you think do this act says hey look at it accept that it's a thing and again in my terms it's like desensitizing you to those thoughts and feelings but in the end the the side effect that they're going to call it a side effect. Don't try to get rid of the thoughts and feelings because it's like holding a ball underwater. You're better off just producing the, those valued outcomes. And probably the side effect is that those things are going to go away, right? Like public speaking, I used to be very afraid of. And I'm like, all right, very afraid of. I think it's, if you told me I had to public speak in six months, I would be thinking about every day all the time. Horrible. And the only thing that got me through it was very short doses of doing it with somebody else and having the crowd laugh or whatever, then over time, I'm like, man, this is fantastic. And now I love doing, it. I still have a little anxiety before I get up there, but it's, it's in performance enhancing anxiety, right? It gets me ready for the show, so to speak, as opposed to the other way. Did that, that, did that answer your question or, or did I go oh. off on a tangent? All right. This is the second of your two keywords, conditions, C-O-N-D-I-T-I-O-N-S. Under what conditions does the behavior need to occur? conditions oh no that was beautiful um i always tell people like i really am scribbling when i look down um and yeah i've got this beautiful page full of notes because you mentioned you know you, you want them to develop these habits and so with these habits that means that the environment also needs to be supportive of that and it's such a good reminder that it isn't just one layer that it's not just the person that you're working with it's the histories and the people that they come from in those environments and then it's the other people that are in charge of it so like with it with teachers we'll, we'll start with that one it's your kiddos and then it's the teachers and then it's the admin level and if at any point it starts to break down it's going to affect the whole thing and so it's so important that I think when we're being asked to call, you know, to come in and consult and coach that we're taking all of those layers into consideration because otherwise we're doing a disservice to really whoever our client is. But I think a lot of times it comes down to either a child or it's a vulnerable population that that's our usual or populace are the ones that are. Yeah, and we wouldn't say like, if we were working with learner or child in the classroom and we put together a behavior plan and they weren't following the behavior plan, right? They weren't, you know, achieving their goals. We're not going to be like, you know what? Sorry, no plan for you. <laughs> you're done. You know, you're not, you're not working within my plan. You have to look at every teacher, para, school leader, anybody that doesn't, isn't armed with the greatest science in the world, which is science, human behavior, applied behavior analysis. You have to look at them as learners. Right. And again, to your point, if you're going to bring out the best in the student, you got to bring out the best in the teacher and up that chain. You know, you cannot separate that chain because, you know, you're not going to be there to sustain. There, there's a, a process called institutionalization. And uh, institutionalization really just means, that, simply put, embedding, you know, behavioral principles with the people, you know, engaging them and assessing what needs to happen. Uh, engaging them in developing the intervention, engaging them in collecting the data on, engaging them in uh, dispensing the consequences, right? So, I mean, that's using some, you know, 
behavioral principles, understanding that. And when you institutionalize things, then you can fade out. If you're not institutionalizing it, that means you have to be there for maintenance, right? And so you really want to teach people to fish. And we know, by the way, when we're telling people we're, they're putting themselves out of the job, they're really not. They're making more work for themselves because when people see you're successful, that's what's going to spread the science, success, right? Not telling people what to do, not saying you need to do this, helping be uh, helping them be successful. If you say, these guys just won't listen, I'm telling them what to do. You're not, you're well-intended, but it's not about your intentions. It's about your impact. You have to look at it as a scientist. What do you need to do more or less or differently to increase the likelihood that they're going to engage in these behaviors? And these are things like you have to pair, you have to develop you know, a relationship with people. You know, you have to find what's important to them, what their reinforcers are. You have to help them engage in behavior that's going to produce those reinforcers using quick wins or behavioral momentum to do it. And now they like you. They like what you have to offer. You know, they want more of that stuff. You, you, you need to use metrics to show that that they're growing, that they're making a difference, not that they're not doing the right shit, right? Collect the baseline data, but show them that when you do this, you're producing this result, you know? Uh, then they're going to be more likely to do it. They're going to like you more. And other people are going to like you more and they're going to like the science. And we want them to like the science, right? Because we want them to want more of the science. But the scientists have to do a better job of using the science to produce these outcomes. And I don't, I'm not even blaming the scientists because our educational programs are so focused on what the science is, but applying the science is, you know, like I'm not, I'm not a researcher, you know, I, I apply, I'm not, I don't, don't research OBM. I do. I use OBM principles in, in the areas that are as a leader, as a coach, as a manager, whatever, those are all just nouns. They don't matter. They all have some function there, you know, to, to, to you know, that, that, that what, they're supposed to produce some sort of outcome. So, you know, we need to help, our own field understand this as well. We need to break down the behavioral myopia. I love it. And I think I'm not going to summarize much more than that, other than um, that's kind of our, our mission here at ATBA is to help um, remind behavior analysts that our science is so cool and it can be applied in so many areas. And I think you give this beautiful exemplar of yeah, we were in schools and social work and I saw the principles there and now I use it with fighters and training and fitness. And so, but it's the same stuff. It's, it's the same. I like to say it's all the same frosting. It's just whether or not you like it with sprinkles or with, you know, chocolate chips in it. It's all the same delicious yeah. frosting. It is. That's exactly right. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, we'll talk to you guys soon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kelly. Bye. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website, atypicalba.com, for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes.